One of the questions that our culture has no answer to is how to hold together justice and forgiveness. We all want justice, but none of us wants to be judged, certainly not on our worst moments. No one wants oppression or wrongdoing to go unpunished, and yet we all long for forgiveness. And I think it can feel at times like at the minute we've ended up with the worst of all worlds. Injustice continues unabated all around us, while judgmentalism hits new heights and forgiveness gets harder and harder to find. And so we want to ask, well, how could we break free? How could you build a society, a culture, a community where, where justice and forgiveness were held together? And actually, the book of Isaiah asks exactly that question in a different key. The question is this, how can a holy God of perfect justice forgive sinful, broken, messy people? Right at the start of Isaiah chapter 1, we hear that God's people are in rebellion against him. They're perverting justice. They're oppressing the poor and the needy. And yet God says that though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. So does God not care about injustice? In chapter 6, Isaiah receives the vision of God lifted up on the throne, holy, majestic, and he's confronted with his own sin and unworthiness to be in the presence of, of such a holy God. But an angel comes from the altar of God with a coal and touches it to its lips and says, see, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. But surely a holy God of perfect justice can't just decide to say that our sin has been taken away. Well, last week, if you were here, in chapter 40, we heard these wonderful words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. But how has her sin been paid for? It, is 70 years of exile for that generation enough? Well, what about the next generation? What about our generation? How can God say to us, as sinful, broken people, comfort? Comfort. How can a holy God of perfect justice forgive sinful people? Well, today's passage gives us the answer. In this poem the final of the four so-called servant songs of Isaiah 40 to 55, God reveals to us how he can hold together perfect justice and infinite forgiveness. And he can do it through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's look at him together. And the first thing we're going to see is the suffering of the innocent servant. The suffering of the innocent servant Come with me to, to chapter, sorry, verse 3 of chapter 53, um, page 741 if you've closed it. Isaiah writing hundreds of years before, is, is given a vision, he looks forward, he sees Christ and he writes, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. The life of Jesus Christ was marked with suffering from beginning to end. 
forced to flee attempted murder as a child, a refugee in a foreign land. Rejected in his hometown by those who knew him best. Thought by his family to be out of his mind. A wanderer with nowhere to lay his head. Found weeping by the grave of a friend. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Yet, of course, those words speak most deeply to his death and to the agony of the cross as he was abandoned by his friends, rejected by the crowds, despised and mocked by those who stood there and watched him die. And for many of us, that is quite a familiar thought. It's a familiar picture picture of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I wonder if the familiarity can actually dull us to the horror of what he went through. Look with me at uh, chapter 52, verse 14. Isaiah writes, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Now, as we read those words, in light of the crucifixion, we find that they are not a metaphor. They're not poetic license. To be disfigured, to be marred, is what crucifixion did, is what crucifixion was like. Jesus was flogged, he was beaten. He had a crown of thorns rammed onto his head and then he was led out to be crucified, too weak to carry his cross. Nails driven through his wrists and feet and hung up, naked, pathetic, to die a slow and agonising death. His appearance disfigured beyond that of a human being. His form marred beyond human likeness. That is what crucifixion was like. And that is what crucifixion was for. That was what it was supposed to do to people. The author and preacher Fleming Rutledge writes, crucifixion as a means of execution had as its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. It was a public announcement that this person is the scum of the earth, not fit to live, more an insect than a human being. That is the shame of the cross. That is the suffering of a servant. And Isaiah sees that that is the suffering of the innocent servant. Look at verse 9, just over the page. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus was killed even though he had done nothing wrong. The humiliation, the mockery of Jesus is the humiliation mockery of an innocent man, the only truly innocent man who's ever lived. The torture and agonising death of Jesus was the torture and agonising death of the only truly innocent man who has ever lived. It's the suffering of the innocent servant. 
And yet keep looking with me. Next, start of the next verse, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will. So the holy God of perfect justice willed the suffering of the innocent servant, his innocent servant. Why? Well, the answer to that question brings us not just to the heart of this passage, but to the heart of the gospel according to Isaiah. Here is the place where God's justice and his forgiveness meet in the suffering of the innocent servant in our place. In our place. I'm going to read verses four to six again slowly. Let these words sink in to your soul. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's right there. Do you see it? The innocent servant, Jesus Christ, suffered in our place. <laughs> he bore our suffering, our pain. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. In the agony of the cross, Jesus is not bearing the weight or taking the punishment of his own sin because there isn't any. He's innocent. There's none of his own sin for him to pay for. He's paring the weight and he's taking the punishment for our sin. For my sin, for your sin. Back in Isaiah chapter one, Isaiah describes what, what sin does to human beings. Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. There is no soundness, only wounds and bruises and open sores. And in that chapter, that's a picture. It's a metaphor of what rejecting God does to human beings in our relationships. But on the cross, in the bloodied, maimed body of Jesus Christ, that is the reality of sin. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. <laughs> you probably know the way that sometimes something you've done wrong or said wrong or thought wrong and, and it weighs down on you. You feel the burden of the shame of the guilt. The fact you can't undo it. You can't unsay it. You can't unthink it. You can't put it right. Do you know that burden? Well, imagine for a minute that that burden was physical. Right? Imagine that you, you walked around um, your life wearing a big rucksack, and every time you sin, you put a stone in the rucksack. I've got about 10 today, but we'll come back to the rucksack. So, like, at least, right? Every, every time you sin, stone in the rucksack. Imagine that. 
Every time you feel jealous, stone in the rucksack. Every time you use your words to hurt, stone in the rucksack. Every time you know what God wants you to do and you do something different, stone in the rucksack. Every time you look lustfully at someone, stone in the rucksack. Every time you're ungrateful, stone in the rucksack. Mine's pretty full pretty fast. After not very long, I'd be struggling to do anything, to walk anywhere. Back aching, knees breaking. Now imagine if you can that this entire space was filled with those rucksacks. The whole church. Takes about 100,000 rucksacks. 100,000 sinful lives to fill this church. Okay, there are 700,000 Christians, roughly speaking, in London right now. Now, now God could have asked each of us to carry our own rucksack. That would be absolutely fair. But the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. So for Jesus to bear the weight of the sin of just the Christians alive in this city right now, is seven churches worth of rucksacks on his shoulders. The one who was crushed. That's the weight that means he stumbles and falls as he seeks to carry the cross. That's the weight that drives the nails into his hands. That's the weight that means that he can't lift up his body one more time to breathe, but instead breathes his last. The weight of our sin, of our guilt, of our shame, all on his shoulders. As the words of the song put it, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. But in one important sense, that's not quite right. Because it wasn't ultimately our sin that held him there, naked and pathetic, bloody and dying. It wasn't our sin that held him there, it was his love. Jesus isn't trapped. He isn't stuck. It's not that he can't escape, that he can't get down. It is these choosing, hour by hour, moment by moment, to stay on the cross, to go through unimaginable suffering for you and for me in our place. When we read that it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, we must not for a moment think that what we have is an angry, vengeful father and a reluctant, innocent son who's being punished in some form of cosmic child abuse. Not at all. This is the will of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is love. And when that one God looks at broken, sinful people, he desires, with the single divine will, to save us. To unite his perfect justice and his perfect love by bearing the punishment for our sin himself. And so the son humbles himself to become a man, to die, and to be crucified for you and for me. On the 30th of May, 1942, 
The RAF pilot, Leslie Manzer, flew a combat mission over Cologne, Germany, um, and there were five other men in his plane. The plane was hit, and one of the engines began to overheat dangerously. But Manzer chose not to abandon the plane, but to fly on in the hope that he could get the plane and the crew out of German airspace so that as they, as they, as they bailed out, they would be bailing out into Allied territory somewhere safe. So he stays at the controls, and as the plane flew on, the engine burst into flame, making it almost impossible to control. But Manza pressed on. He brought the plane out of German airspace over into Belgium and ordered the rest of the men to bail out. He refused a parachute, refused to stop manning the plane, piloting the plane on the controls to take his own parachute, but remained out there to make sure that the others had time. And they did have time. They got out. And afterwards, those five men described how, as they drifted down under their parachutes into Allied territory, they saw the plane smash into the ground and burst into flames with... Mans are still on board. Imagine for a minute what it's like to be one of those five guys. What would you feel to see your comrade, your friend, lay down his life for you? Now look at the cross. Look at Christ on the cross and see your friend, your Lord, your God, laying down his life for you. The suffering of the innocent servant in our place. And it worked. It worked. Look with me at verse 10 again, page 742. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. It worked. The suffering of the innocent servant is not the end of the story. (laughs) Instead, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. Chapter 52, verse 13, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He didn't stay in the grave. He didn't stay dead. He rose again, defeating sin and death and ascended into heaven where right now, as I speak, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us. And by raising Christ from the grave and into heaven, God declares that he's accepted Jesus's suffering and sacrifice in our place. It has worked. And so if we trust in him, if we live for him, then the the punishment that has brought us peace, it's worked. We really have peace. Our sin has been dealt with, past, present and future. 
once and for all. And so we can come into the very presence of God, enjoy him, be with him. Now forever, it worked. If we trust in him, then by his wounds, we really are healed. The damage that sin has wreaked in our lives and our relationships can genuinely, slowly but surely begin to be undone. Because our old selves ruled by sin have been nailed with Christ to the cross. They've been killed and we can live new lives in the power of his spirit. It worked. Our sins have been washed as white as snow. It worked. Our guilt has been taken away and our sin atoned for. It worked. Our sins have been paid for and so we have the unparalleled comfort of restored relationship with God, God's strength at work in our weakness, carried close to his heart now and forever. So as I close, how should we respond to all this? Well, there's, there's one command in today's passage. I don't know if you saw it. It's the very first word. See. Look. Behold. Look at Jesus. Suffering in our place and keep on looking. And as we look, and as we keep on looking, we will find that the deepest questions we have about ourselves and about God, well, here's the answer. Can I be forgiven, we ask? Can I really be forgiven after everything I've done? If you knew what I'd done, if you, if you saw the, work, the worst, the darkest secrets of my heart, can I really be forgiven? Look at Christ on the cross. Look at him. He was pierced for our transgressions. Can I really have peace, we ask? Can I really have peace? Like There's so much war and tension inside my soul and all this difficult stuff I've got to deal with. And, and when it comes to God, well, he's still so distant. And I, sometimes when I'm praying, I just think I'm, and no one's there. And I, and I know I don't love him. Can I ever really have peace? Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. Look at him. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Does God care about justice? Like, look at the world. Look at the mess. Look at the war. Look at the famine. Look at human slavery, trafficking, injustice, oppression everywhere. Does God really care about justice? Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. Look at him. God will not let evil go unpunished. Does God really love me? That's the question at the bottom of our hearts, isn't it? Does God really love me? might be the things that have happened, the ways you've suffered, might be the things you long for and God hasn't given you. 
the prayers that have gone unanswered. And so we cry out in the depths of our being, God, do you, do you really love me? Because says, look at the cross. Look at Jesus Christ. You know that I love you. Look at him. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above as heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see Jesus Christ on the cross, suffering, dying in our place. For the power of your Spirit. Amen.